I've been on about 50 sweeps, and most of my victories have been gained over France. I've been blessed with a pair of good eyes, and have learned to shoot straight. I've not been shot down, touch wood, and I've only been once badly shot up. I hope that doesn't sound too Irish. That's the voice of Paddy Finucane, 21 years old, from Dublin. An Aria fighter pilot, already a war hero in Britain, but in July 1942, just six months or so after that BBC broadcast, Finucane, in his Spitfire, was destined to lie in a watery grave on the seabed of the English Channel. Before going off on a trip, I usually have a funny feeling in my tummy, but once I'm in my aircraft, everything is fine. The brain is working fast, and if the enemy is met, it seems to work like a clockwork motor, accepting that, rejecting that, sizing up this, and remembering that. You don't have time to feel anything, but your nerves may be on edge, not from fear, but from excitement and the intensity of the mental effort. I don't remember Paddy ever showing the least sign of worry or strain. And I had every confidence in following him into whatever we had to do. If we ran into trouble, normally he would always see that we got out of it. We were very dependent on good leadership. And as it happened, we were lucky enough to have it. Paddy Finnegan, he was a hero in the country. He was the leading fighter ace. He was the one who had more victories than anybody else. And obviously, one was proud to go and fly with that man. He had a great number of admirers around the world, not just in England. He was admired because of his prowess and because we all needed people to be proud of. Our morale had to be kept up because it was desperate. The Battle of Britain decided what our future was to be. Some months ago, I was at the North Wall Ferry Port to meet one of the Falucan family, Kevin Falucan, Paddy's brother. Kevin was visiting Dublin for a few days. He was returning to Ireland for the first time in 67 years, and he was back to revisit the Dublin years of the Falucans and to remember his famous brother. My journey was vigorous, bouncing, but it was quite nonetheless interesting. I met on the train, for instance, two 80-year-old ladies who were just returning from marching at the Cenotaph in London yesterday. So it was very pleasant to meet these two widow ladies who were very cheerful and were interested in what I was going to do in Ireland. And here, well, I don't recognise the place, of course. When I went across, it was from Dunleary in the uh, mailboat. It's good to be here. The next day, I set out with Kevin on the Finucane Trail. Our first stop was in Lower Grand Canal Street to read an inscription on the site of Boland's Mill. On this trail of a World War II fighter pilot, 
it seemed an unlikely starting point. This is Boland's mill. It's hard to imagine that my father fought here with Eamon de Valera, his schoolteacher in mathematics. And I'm just in front of a plaque which reads as follows. In memory of the heroes who fought in this area for the cause of Irish freedom during Easter week 1916. Unveiled on the 15th of April 1966 by the President of Ireland, Eamon de Valera, whose headquarters as commandant in 1916 were in these buildings. So, quite a place. I think my father was a young man. was here with even a rifle, but he never said a word about it to any one of us sort of percolated through. Stories about his son's activities in aerial combat have also percolated through. Dick Lewis was a pilot colleague of Paddy Finucane's. He recalls this incident during which Finucane was injured in 1941. In the second head-on attack, the squadron leader was hit. His aircraft was struck in the spinner, in the starboard wing, and in the side of his cockpit. Pieces of fuselage went into his side. I heard him call over the radio telephone, open out and make for home, the so-and-sos have hit me. He went right down, almost to the deck, and I followed him as hard as I could. I didn't know how badly he had been hit, and the natural thing to do seemed to be to protect his tail if I could. Paddy came back to help me on several occasions when things were becoming a little too hot. He may have been wounded, but he was still full of fight. We were getting pretty near the English coast, and Paddy told me over the RT that he was not feeling too well, but he made a wizard landing and taxied up to his dispersal point as if nothing had happened. He put up a grand show, and though he was in plenty of pain when I saw him in hospital a few hours later, he was cheerful as ever. The story of Paddy Finucane comes as a surprise to many Irish people story of this young Dubliner who had hero status in Britain during the early years of World War II. This RAF pilot with a shamrock painted on his Spitfire, one of the top fighter pilots of the war. At the age of 21, the youngest ever wing commander in the force, and following his death, two and a half thousand people attended his memorial service in Westminster Cathedral. Today, a street in London and a hospital wing carry his name. And yet, his story is hardly known here. I should mention that while popularly known as Paddy in British newspapers and radio of the time, the Finucane family always referred to him by his actual name, Brendan. His brother Kevin was keen to go and see once again a particular house in Rathmines, the family home in the early Finucane years. Well, here we are in Rathmines Road, Dublin, outside number 26, the house where I was born. Of course, in those days, it was numbered differently. It was number 13. All the children were born here, of which there are five. Brendan, Eamon, Fitzpatrick, Finucane, the distinguished one at the top, who was born here in 1920, followed by Raymond two years later, who was also in the Royal Air Force, 
operational, of course, and myself, and then my two younger sisters. All of us, apart from the sadness of Brendan, are still alive. But it's it's a nice house. It's a nice house. I can always imagine that in the time we were here that you wouldn't hear this mountain of traffic. You just hear the clip-clop of hooves as the little carts went past. We are very close to the Portobello Bridge, which in the 1920s, I can't remember the exact date, there was a certain amount of action, and my mother, wheeling Brendan out in the pram, heard machine gun fire and had to go and hide under the hedges which were here in the front gardens until the bullets which clipped over her ceased. But that was her one great military adventure until World War II. So Renan had his baptism of fire here. Then it was on to the next port of call, O'Connell School in North Richmond Street. It was here that he started his education, and it was education taught by the Christian brothers who are well-known, if not famous, for their discipline. And it was from here that he learned the joy of physical sports, boxing, rugby, football, everything else which he was very good at. But also they taught him academic work and he, from this he learnt his mathematics and the think in a way which helped him during the Battle of Britain and the few months after that. It must have been rather chilly here in the winter with him in his little jersey and his mop of hair and probably with his younger brother Raymond. I, of course, was too young to be involved with this, but no doubt I came here to collect him once or twice. Well, I'm off now to uh, meet Mr. Michael Finucane, who, by coincidence, though not related to me, has the same name. And I must confess that I'm feeling a little bit nervous, and this is something which is entirely subconscious. To meet the headmaster was a rare event, and it meant there was always something wrong. Master. Kevin, you're very welcome. Thank you very welcome much for school, spending so the I'd... time to see us. Come in here. Thank you very much. Take a seat. Sit down. Okay, here we have the, the, the register for O'Connell's Schools Dublin, secondary department, from 1932 to 1944. And this contains details of all the students who attended the school during those years. You said Brendan came here in 33. He was here in 33, 34, 34, 35, 35, 36, and he would have left after his intercert in 1936. And certainly Brendan was uh, very talented, I think, in terms of our records, what he was able to achieve. He also uh, was a classmate of some other notable people uh, from our point of view, talking about sports. 
there were two commentators who would have been in Brendan's class, Philip Green and Michal O'Hare. Now, Philip would have been probably the most known soccer commentator in Ireland. I shared a desk with uh, Brendan in 1935. He was was a very nice fellow. He's a very gentle fellow. And I couldn't have found a nicer fellow to to be alongside. Sometimes the fellows are a bit, uh, you know, maybe they're jealous, maybe they look down on you, maybe they want you to look up to them, I don't know. He had so much going from so so many talents. I myself uh, was fairly good at most things. He was special. That's everything he touched his hand to. Um, rugby football. He boxed a bit. He also rode. He he, he won a medal crewing on the Liffey. So absolutely outstanding fellow. Sometimes you'll find a class and they'll have it in for somebody or other, you know. Nobody had a bad word to say about Brendan Finucane. The roll book as well. Uh, this would have been from 1935-36, the intermediate certificate. Year, class F. Yeah. Now, we can see here, I mean, reference is made for some reason. Brendan's attendance. 97 yes. days. Oh, whereas we see some of the other boys, I think the maximum would have been about 210 days at that time. What year was this? This would have been 1935, school year 35, 36. He had an operation. He went to hospital for an appendix or something similar. And out of that came a a very sad story because next to his bed in hospital in Dublin, there was a man who went round at halls of Ireland reading fortunes. Mm -hmm. And my mother came and insisted that my brother's fortune should be read. The man was reluctant. He said, no, I don't wish to do it. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, he was persuaded. And he said that he would die a watery death by the age of 21. Oh, my goodness. Which happened. In fact, when he, he died when he was 21 and a half. And my brother rang Raymond, my other brother, when he was 21, and said, I've made it, you know, OK. But that must have been That's lurking at the back of his mind. Be, yeah, so that might have been that. You know, that's, it could have been maybe it answers that. My name is Desmond O'Connor. Brendan and I shared the same desk in Brother Pender's class in the year 1933. Brendan was mature for his age. He was quiet. He wasn't the sort of person to seek popularity or be getting about in any way. Brendan, at that time, was captain of the under-12 rugby team. I remember the initial game I played under his captaincy was against Blackrock, in Blackrock. We won that match. He was the skipper. He set the game plan. I'm looking round now. I can hear machine gun fire, but I can't see our Spitfires. There must be somewhere there. Oh, there's a terrific mix-up now over the channel. It's impossible to tell which are our machines and which are the Germans. There's one definitely down in this battle, and there's a fight going on. You can hear the little rattles of machine gun bullets. Here comes this one Spitfire. There are the little bursts. nearest I've been to being shot down was when another pilot and I attacked a Yonkers 88. 
The bomber went down to sea level so that we could only attack from above in face of the fire of the JU-88's rear guns. We put that JU-88 into the sea, all right, but I had to struggle home with my aircraft riddled with bullets and the undercarriage shot away. I force landed without the undercarriage. It was none the worse for it. It wasn't very nice at the time. Really? Uh, not really. Uh, no. I mean, the Daily Herald and so on came into the house every day. But I knew, you know, that he was in some way distinguished, you know, but to me, he was my brother. Of course. And he was extremely generous to me. I bought you a copy of his record of service. I hope I Oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. If you'd like to keep that. Oh, lovely, thank you. It was quite an accelerated promotion, wasn't it, through the ranks? Oh, yes, because people died. Acting and like commander. He was recognised as a leader very quickly. And uh, by the time that he was a wing commander, he was still only just out of his teens, 21. Now, that, that's a very, very early age to reach that stature in a, in a major organisation like the Royal Air Force. Big names in British politics knew of and spoke so highly of this young Irishman who finally gave his life in the service of others. Anybody who knew him thought very well of him. Even the most jealous of lads that we had, and we had some of them, but they all admired Brendan Finucane, as I still do. It's the Royal Air Force. Yeah, Wonderful think. record, isn't it, really? I mean, it's such, yeah. a, such a short span of about four years. That's right. So the talent was there. The talent was obviously there. I suppose like uh, all our past pupils, we are always proud, and especially anybody who has contributed in any way uh, to history or, or in any other aspect, and certainly the, the story of Brendan or Paddy, as he would be affectionately known, uh, certainly we would always hold here in high esteem, and it is something that we would be proud of here in the school. Quite close to Sunnymount Village is a road called Farney Park. And on that road is the house to which the family had moved before they emigrated to England in the winter of 1936. Well, here we are in Fandy Park. I don't want to really count the number of years since I was last here on my bicycle. And there's the house. Looking trim, well cared for, with a garage. And some nice plants in the garden. And looking at the upper window on the first floor, there are only two floors, I remember Brendan painting the windows. So there he is, up the ladder. Somebody probably uh, teasing him up there, you know. What are your wages like, Brendan, up there? So as we come closer, it becomes even more familiar, but... It's the back garden I remember most, being six or seven or so at the time. I spent a lot of my time in there. My two sisters were too girlish for me. My two brothers were too big for me. I soon caught up there. Patricia Sweetman, how do you do? How do you do? This is the house where I lived. 
65 odd years ago. Yes, I remember. There used to be black stove too. Yes, everything of course was brand new. There was no motor car in the garage. Because <laughs> everything was so close, you know. Yes. Going to school and everything. The village. Going to church was the village just absolutely, forward. yeah. And your parents sold the house in 1936. Yes, all the children were sent ahead. But it certainly was uh, a nice place to live, and uh, I think five children. I wonder how mother did it. Yes, all the boys slept in one room. Three bedrooms. And he had the senior bed, which was next to the window. Your and elder brother. brother yes. yes, I and see. And there's another brother who is still alive. Very much really? so. He's 80 something rather now. And I see him very often. We were 17 months apart. Uh, we were very close as brothers. We had a, good, a few scraps from occasions, you know, when we got annoyed with one another and sort of had a bit of fisty cuffs. But we were very close all, all through our lives. And in fact, he was my hero to a great extent. He and I sort of seemed to have the same ideas about things. We we always were making aeroplanes out of Meccano. And our father used to give us sixpence where we made the best one. We made aeroplanes that couldn't possibly fly, but we made all kinds of aeroplanes. And we used to get magazines and try and copy them into a Meccano. Because Meccano was a thing in those days. There wasn't anything else. And uh, we used to sort of pretend having air battles, you know, we pretend to be... Mickey Manic or somebody or other like that from the First World War. So we were always terribly interested in aeroplanes. We, we just caught the bug very early. And we did our first flight at Valdonald. And the father treated us. I can't remember if it was 10 shillings each to go up or a pound. Anyway, we went up. It just took, took off and round the airfield and came in and landed. It only lasted about five, six minutes or something or that. But that was the first one. And we were absolutely thrilled. Well, where did your family originally come from? Well, start my mother. Uh, she was born in uh, England. And she was 18 at the outbreak of the First World War. Oh, goodness, yes. August. And she became engaged to a young man who went to the front and never returned and two or three years later to another young man, and he did the same. And then towards the end of the war, for some extraordinary reason, my father turned up in Leicester, where she lived. And her mother was a very feisty person, and she said, you better marry him. There are so few men left. So my mother found, her, found herself over here at the end of 1919, 1920. And... Uh, she remained over here until she left. That's they got quite well, I think. Five <laughs> 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 children, you know. She was not a Catholic, of course, to set difficulty. But oh, she, mm. she accepted. Well, there's a lot music stories. In, in those days, it must have been yes. very difficult. Mm. My father was rather annoyed one day in Dublin that uh, the, the par- parish priest passed by. And my father was annoyed because uh, my mother failed to curtsy to him. And that was the custom. In those days? In those days. She said, no, I will not. We were both brought up as strict Catholics, you know. All the family were. 
and we agreed on a lot of things, but he had very strong ideas. On He was a good Catholic, which he was better than I was, frankly. He was much better at going to communion and things like that than I was. And he was uh, he was an altar boy. I don't think he ever had any ideas regarding being a priest or anything else like that. But I think he got that really from my father, who was a very keen Catholic indeed. I mean, my father, you know, we used to say the rosary and the appropriate months and all that kind of thing. And I think that came for him. I think I was more more influenced by my mother, who became a Catholic to marry my father, but didn't like the Catholic religion at all, and, and went back to being a Protestant. So I was more my mother in, in that way. Yes, we bought this house from a prize which you won on the Irish sweep. Not a big one, but enough of one. So that's how we acquired it. And, you know, that is one of the lucky, fortunate things happened to my mother in her life. But we didn't Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. We used to go down this, uh, on Sandy Mount Sands and, and, and play there a lot. Um, play football or rugger even. And we used to get um, covered in sand and come home and get told off by our mother. But however, we enjoyed it. Um, but we, we loved, above all, the countryside. That was one thing we loved getting on our bikes and going out from Dublin to all kinds of places. And we were very keen on, on bird watching, things like that. And we used to do go out to, I remember, a farm outside Dublin. We used to go out there and get fruit and vegetables, things from our mother. So we were brought up on fresh food. She was very keen on that. And this is the dining room and the sitting room. Oh, I remember this, yes. Mm. We had, yes, my mother and family, a lot of people used to come to visit us. Really? Yes. Oh. Of course, it was an Irish custom, wasn't it, visiting? Yes, I remember this, with the furniture filled with people, talking and talking away all the time. My father was a little political, I think, and he was a, a fluent speaker of Gaelic. Really? Isn't that interesting? Which, uh, and he would jabber away about uh, yeah. various episodes in his life, you know. My father, was he was involved in 1916, and of course came the war, all of his sons disappeared into the, the British services. <laughs> and he always thought that was rather funny, after 1916. But when, when we came to England and Brendan wanted to join the RAF, uh, he didn't stand in his way, he helped him all he possibly could. He was always of the opinion, and he was always disappointed at the fact that Ireland never fought on the same side, because he felt that if... If Hitler got into England, then it was the end of Ireland anyway. So they might as well have joined in. That was his feeling. Well, I hope you have a lovely few days. Send your address to me, and I'll send you some photographs. That's very the kind. The house. That's lovely. I, More than welcome. And it's a lucky house, so buy some it's really. <laughs> lottery tickets. <laughs> bye bye, then. Yes, well, that was thought provoking. But it was a very happy time with all its children and my mother and father and all the other children in the new road which I, whom I played with. A good time. Finally, Kevin Finucane went to Dunleary.
to meet some of the members of the Irish branch of the Royal Air Forces Association. Yes. Well, I see the front door is in Royal Air Force Blue, which is yes, indeed. proper and correct. This is Jim Kelly, our chairman. This is this is Kevin Finogan. How do you do? How do, you do? This is Brendan's brother. We're all ex-RAF here. Good. In spite of everything. That's Raymond. Uh, would you like to see the, the only picture oh, sure. you have? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's the picture there. Oh, that's right. I instantly that's, recognized it. That's your, that's yeah, your yeah. brother's that's portrait. Yes, yeah. yes. So there well, you isn't, are. Isn't that a lovely photograph, isn't it? I've never seen that before. Let's see that We were going through a very difficult period until roughly August of 1942, we were having a hard time because the Germans had got the Focke-Wulf 190 fighter, uh, which was superior in many ways to Airspit Mark Vs. On one occasion, there was an air attack on Le Havre. I was flying number two to Paddy, and we got in a, an absolute swarm of German fighters, both Messerschmitt 109s and Focke-Wulf 190s. Certainly the enemy aircraft was firing an awful lot of ammunition in my direction. And there was one particular point when I was following Paddy closely and he went into a very steep left-hand turn. I followed him and as I did so, a 190 shot past me. And had I not have turned with Paddy, he would almost certainly have shot me down. Paddy was very aware of what had happened and undoubtedly saved my skin. And uh, boys at the time were superb in aircraft recognition. I could tell a Fock Wolf 190 <laughs> yes. from a Heinkel 111, you yes, know, no yes. trouble at all. Yes. And I remember one day Brendan came on leave during the Battle of Britain. It was a beautiful day, rather like this clear blue sky. And we heard the familiar sound of machine guns above us as we walked home along the broad street. Yeah. And he saw glinting. And he said to me, what are those? And I said, they're bombs. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he said. And he ran across the road and I ran after him and said, yeah. you can't do that, you'll alarm the population. A Royal Air Force officer flying across the road. <laughs> so he was good up in the air, but not as good as me down below. <laughs> But also, um, interesting, I, I found it, every year somebody published in, um, or put into the immemorial column in the Daily Telegraph, a little obituary notice, if you'd like to say, immemorium, mm-hmm. Finucane, Wing Commander, B.E., Paddy Finucane, DSO, etc., killed in action, the English Channel, July the 15th, 42, aged 21 years, in honoured memory. And I managed to trace the person who put this in through the newspaper. And uh, here she was, Josephine Hind, who was um, a young girl during the war and always remembered him. Really? It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And she was happy to know and pleased to know about myself and my brother. (laughs) And uh, Someone she was still mourning, and my other brother sent her a nice photograph. And oh, that was nice. That's very nice. nice. Yes. She was an elderly lady by that time, so she was obviously very yeah. grateful.
This is London. Yesterday, I talked with pilots. Out in the middle of the field, the wreckage of a plane was being cleared up. It had crashed the night before. The pilot had been shot in the head, but had managed to get back to his field. They all told the same story about numbers. Six of us go over, they said, and we meet 12 Germans. If 10 of us go, there are 20 Germans. But they were all anxious to go again. When the squadron took off, one of them remarked quite casually that he'd be back in time for tea. Very like this gramophone record, Tangerine. It was a very popular tune at the time. Something like Tangerine, she's all they say, with eyes as this and lips as bright as day. Tangerine, she is all they claim. With her eyes of night and lips as bright as flame. Tangerine. It was a ritual that we, this was played before we went on an operation, you see. And he would come into the crew room. He never missed it to come and listen to Tangerine. And then we'd all, it was over, we'd all go off. But the day he died, he didn't come. I've no idea why. He was probably busy somewhere else. But when, it, when we got back, there was, of course, depression. And uh, we seemed to think that because he hadn't listened to Tangerine, he, it was bad luck. Just uh, sort of stupid things that pilots think and talk about. So we decided that in future we were going to listen to Tangerine. <laughs> Is there a possibility when he was hit? It was over France, I think he was hit, wasn't it? His aircraft was hit. Le Chouquet, yes. I went this yeah. year, I got on my bicycle in Canterbury, went down the road to the airport at Lyd and flew over at 1,500 feet above the waves where he and many others are lying still on the anniversary of his death, 15th of July, 1942. But is there a possibility that it... If he didn't try to cross back to England, that he, he his life would have been saved. He could have bailed out. Isn't that that would have? He was too low to bail out. He was too low. But um, I wrote to one of his old pilots, who was with him the day that he died. <coughs> this is from a man called Sid Moston, who was a sergeant pilot <coughs> in his squadron, my brother's squadron. He was with him on the day my brother lost his life. I do remember that he did not like being tightly strapped into a Spitfire, except for takeoffs and landings, and he had a notch filed in his harness release so that it could be fastened in the unlocked position. He made a textbook job of ditching the aircraft, and a number of us were of the opinion that he forgot to lock his harness, which is understandable in the circumstances. The effect, of course, would be that he would be thrown forward, his head hitting the reflector site, and rendered unconscious. And some of the pilots in the wing saw it, saw it actually go down. I only heard it over the radio, over the RT. The, it came over, the wing codes had uh, been hit, 
then the next thing, the Winko's ditched in the drink. And the Winko's not got out. That's all I heard on the RT. The final paragraph is a nice epitaph. In fact, a marvellous epitaph is, Your brother, sir, was a great man and was held in the highest esteem by all who served with him. I will always remember him, and perhaps one day our paths may cross and we will have a long chat. So that is one of the people who was with him. It was a, a traumatic time, obviously, to lose your head man, who was the, the best. And I would have followed him anywhere, because you couldn't have a better leader. But to, to think that he was so young. That's it. And, and just he would have gone on and done something. He would have. He, he would was have. wanting to go to Australia with his fiancée. Was he really? Yes, yes. And be an accountant because he's very good at figures. Was he really? Yes. 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 Uh, uh, I've got a lot to thank the pilots in my section. They are Australians, and I've never met a more loyal or gamer crowd of chaps. They saved my bacon many a time, and they followed me through thick and thin. On the ground are the cheeriest friends a fellow could have. I'm sure that Australia must be a grand country if it's anything like its pilots. And after the war, I'm going to see it. No, not flying or farming. I like a job with figures, accountancy or auditing. Perhaps that doesn't sound much like a fighter pilot, but pilots are perfectly normal people. Yes, I clearly remember July the 15th, 1942. I'd been to school, and I cycled home as I usually did for lunch, parked my bicycle outside the front gate, and as I went in, the front door opened, and there was my mother. She obviously had been weeping, and she said, it's your brother, Brendan. He's killed, he's dead. And the shock was enormous. And I started to move towards the house. She said, no, no, Kevin. She said, it's best that you should go back to school and continue your work. So I did as I was told, got on my bike and seemed to float back to school. I was not aware of the journey. It was only two or three miles. I arrived in time for the afternoon classes, but a little bit late, perhaps. And as I sat down at my desk, the teacher said to me, Why are you late for Newcomb? And this was too much, and I broke, pulled up the lid of my desk, and wept. My brother is dead, I said. And there was total silence in that classroom. And I was told, perhaps... I should go home. And I said, yes. Collected my few things together and walked slowly out of the classroom. It was only later that I discovered that my poor mother had opened the door to the telegram boy who was crying. And all she said to him was, as she took the telegram from him, which one is it? 
and uh, I remember the very last time I saw him, he came to see me in a Spitfire, and then he took off and did some beautiful aerobatics, beautiful. He wasn't showing off or anything, but he, you know, I said, well, go and do a few aerobatics and show the boys, and he did. It was, he, was a, he was a wonderful pilot. He had the touch. <laughs>